And hello there again. We are back. This is Chris Snowden. You're watching The Swift Half with Snowden. It's a half-hour chat show, folks. And this week, I'm very pleased to introduce Alex Dean, the Conservative commentator. How's it going, Alex? Very well, my friend. Cheers to you. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Now, um, I don't think I'm giving anything away that we are recording this shortly before you present what will now be last night's Live with Littlewood. This will be going out Thursday. You're going out live in half an hour. Yeah. Very nice of you to step in. My In Mark's large shoes this time. Been doing a very fine job, I thought. I enjoy doing it. I think you guys get some really good guests on, and I think it's an example of what think tanks should be doing to amplify audiences. If you think, even if viewing figures are in the low thousands, and that would be a bad episode for you guys on YouTube, it's still many thousands more than you can fit into the building. Yeah. Right? So it's a great opportunity to reuse content, and I think organisations should think about that more, even if you don't have as obvious a USP as the IEA going out there and crashing through you know, market-restrictive barriers and so forth and standing up for free market economics. It's a great um, thing to have done, and I admire what Mark has done with it. So I regard myself as quite lucky, actually, to present that show. Well, very lucky to have you. I remember you being on the show in its early days because it started up, uh, started up under, under lockdown when yeah, think tanks didn't know what on earth they were going to do and we had to immediately become a, a, a seven-day-a-week YouTube channel yeah. and things like Live with Littlewood and indeed this show kind of uh, managed to uh, survive into a, the new normal. Um, but I remember you being on there, and one of Mark's things was, of course, he still does it from time to time, is rating Britain's prospects out of ten, and I was always a, a two or a three. Yeah. You were always a ten, I noticed. Do you think, looking back now, I was right? I do not. Um, I continue to be very optimistic about the future of our country, and I think the fundamentals are good. I think that if you consider recent events, Britain's ability to determine our own future outside of the European Union and the flexibility that that gives us as a country is only more and more manifestly a positive for our country. It's a positive in the way we've been able to react to the situation in Ukraine, for example, where our friends in the European Union um, took a much slower approach and a rather different approach. We were flying materiel to support the Ukrainians around German airspace so as to be able to deliver it uh, to Kyiv and to try and help them. Uh, you know, the Germans had a very particular uh, position on it, but that also informs my next point about our, our future. Britain sub 5% reliant on Russian gas, the Germans plus 50% reliant on Russian uh, gas in their energy mix. Mm -hmm. uh, again, very positive for our national future. And the third thing I think about in economic terms is that the enormous uh, wave of challenges that the globe is going to experience is one in which Britain is going to be far more nimble in a regulatory uh, sense and in a sense of being able to, to flex and change our tax and regulatory environment because of our sovereignty and independence. So, you know, I continue to be very positive about the future um, of this country. And I, I mean, one more thing. Think of all the naysaying that we were told uh, would apply if we, ha if we dared to leave the EU. By now, we're supposed to be in the depths of not just a, a, a recession, but a depression. You know, you and I are supposed to be uh, boiling grass and eating rats in our uh, deserted uh, country by this point, with millions unemployed and, you know, ghouls roaming the earth with super gonorrhea uh, as a result of Brexit. Instead, employment higher than ever. In fact, the trouble is finding people to fill vacancies that we've got mm. in, in the UK. And yes, an inflationary challenge, but that's one that's affecting the world. The city, as robust as ever, um, 
the UK receiving as much investment as ever, uh, the naysayers will always say, well, yeah, it's just not happened yet, it's just not happened yet. We'll go to our graves, in our hundreds, obviously, Chris, um, we'll go to our graves with the naysayers saying, well, it just hasn't happened yet, you just you wait and see. Because they're so desperate to see Britain do badly. But actually, I think that's quite perverse to, to long so much to be right that you want your country to do badly rather than be happy to be wrong and see your country as it manifestly is mm -hmm. doing rather well. I'll give you, I'll certainly give you Brexit, it hasn't made a lot of difference one way or the other, but you know, my pessimism is, is much wider than that. I don't, I don't just think that Britain's doomed, I think Western civilization is probably doomed. You mentioned a, a depression, we've basically been in depression I think since 2008 and it's been the result of conscious economic policy, kind of a, a mad, perverted Keynesianism, ridiculously low interest rates the whole time, and I think we're now paying the price for, for this, and my fear is that we're going to carry on doing even more of it. I think, hang on, there's, a, there's clearly a couple of things on which you and I find agreement. Um, artificially low, or at least let's agree low, interest rates, Very low, uh, which, um, which lead it to a few things. Um, they lead to savers being punished. Mm -hmm. We've got tons of uh, very cheap debt around, um, it props up zombie businesses yep. that would otherwise go to the wall, and it means that there's no real efforts made to improve our productivity, yep. which is admittedly low. The other thing I think though, this, um, the Brexit situation informs this, you really improve productivity when you have you know, when you invest in, businesses invest in, training and uh, resources on the personnel side, power, um, advanced technologies and new R&D. And there's very little incentive for companies to do that whilst debt is ultra cheap and you've got a vast pool of ultra low wage um, uh, employment. Uh, and uh, what you need to do is ensure that the labour market is demanding enough that in order to make it rational to pay people the kind of money they need to survive in the modern economy, you need to skill them, you need to invest in power and so forth. And that happens when you remove a, a clutch of ultra-cheap labour operating on false premises, which is without meaningful controls over our migration situation, which we didn't have before Brexit, uh, we didn't have. Uh, and secondly, businesses need to be incentivised to make that kind of commitment, which they haven't had because of ultra-low interest rates and cheap debt and so forth. So, those things are broadly being combed out, I think, of our system. Interest rates are going up um, across uh, the board. Debt is not going to be quite so cheap. We are going to see some companies, I'm afraid, going to the wall. Mm -hmm. But the people in, who are employed by those businesses are not in sustainable jobs. They're on roads to nowhere, yeah. in, jo in businesses which in any normal economic environment have no purpose continuing to exist. Yeah. So. The system is going, I think, to correct itself in, in that sense, but I wouldn't go so far as, as you to say that's a depression. I mean, in quite the, I mean, I, I well, g I'll give you that we are not as productive as, as we would like to wages be. Wages are currently below 2008 levels. In real terms? Yeah. Well, um, so there's been no meaningful growth. I mean, it's been up and down and so on, but yeah. there's been no meaningful growth for 14 years. Well, there's been some significant spikes in it's the It's gone up and down, yeah. but overall, people are earning less than they did 14 years ago. I would say that we... We tried to use Keynesianism to deal with the financial crisis in 2008, yeah. and we've continued to use it ever since. That's been the problem. We, once that genie was out of the bag of just let's borrow hundreds of billions of pounds, we did it again a few years later when growth wasn't as good as 
we might have hoped. So, I mean, if you look right. at the Bank of England, I looked at this recently, it's very interesting. Go on the Bank of England webpage about quantitative easing, where they yep. explain what it is. Printing money. They show you each of their bouts of quantitative easing, the biggest of which, of course, was during COVID. But there was one in 2012, and the little thing that flashes up when you hover over this big bar of quantitative easing, it said this was to help us achieve our inflation targets in the in the medium term. Now, of course, inflation was very low. Then. How have they done? So what yeah. they're meaning is we printed money in order to get inflation Had up. a bit more inflation. I haven't yeah. noticed them constraining the money supply or burning money in in the past year or so, yeah. despite inflation now being 10%. Which would be the logical thing to do. And I thought there were some very interesting warning shots fired by um, the, the bank recently, uh, sort of protesting any suggestion that they shouldn't be entirely independent and be able to do what they want to do. The trouble with that is that um, until relatively recently, the bank was still uh, basically led by government. And the benefit of that, whatever you think of the government of the day, week, month or year, is that the government is ultimately accountable to people in the country because they are elected. Yeah. The, the governor of the Bank of England, no matter how well qualified or able, and indeed his council, his trustees, his advisors, and those around him, are not elected. And, and I, for one, find it more reassuring in the end to forgive the vernacular, to be able to kick the bums out if you think that they haven't done a good job, yeah. rather than to have a kind of um, self-perpetuating um, eternal um, oligopoly over these sorts of roles and positions in, in which it, people move around, increasingly they move around a series of cartel behaviours from reg regulator to regulator to quango to quango, to public sector organisation to organisation, never having to sully their hands by appealing to the uh, common man for their approval, mm -hmm. never having to go to the electorate uh, for their blessing. So I'm afraid I, I for one, am rather more sceptical of the bank's claims for the um, lily-white impartiality of their position being guaranteed by I independence. I find it more reassuring to have gov people in government responsible that we I elect. And the other thing about that, I suppose, is, is that we would perhaps respect those institutions more if they didn't increasingly take positions which were in themselves partisan and political in, in their nature. Yeah. On Brexit was a big example. Whatever you think of climate change, that's another one. Uh, the, 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 whatever you think of, um, uh, of those sorts of, of social issues like uh, alleged diversity, you know, these are positions on which the organisations like the bank, not just singling out the bank itself now, mm. take really quite extreme positions. And they do so without being accountable to people in this country in the way that those who are elected are. And I think being elected gives you a mandate to take those roles or take those stances in a way that um, civil servants, basically, are not entitled to do. They regard themselves as more entitled to because they're civil servants. Yeah. I regard them as less entitled to. Yes, indeed. I mean, the last time inflation was anywhere near 10% in the early 90s, interest rates, I think, were about 15%. This time they're 1.75% and people are complaining about that. There's clearly so who, a way to Who go. is right? Are they right now or were they right then? Something or should like, it be somewhere in the I middle? Think something in the middle. Um, I think interest rates, at once you get to 15%, home ownership under any kind of mortgage structure resembling what we see in the United Kingdom uh, becomes uh, difficult. And it, it actually um, significantly entrenches um, inherited wealth and it significantly entrenches um, assets that you've had for a long time. Well, not if inflation is also 15%. That, that's a fair point, but I'm just addressing your point about interest rates for a second because my point is that I don't just mean that you get um, 
you get more in your savings in, in interest, which is a positive, of course, and there are plenty of people who aren't very well off who need that. What I mean is that it's a barrier to entry for people getting a mortgage in the first place and getting on the housing it ladder. And, that's a, and, and once you have a society of, built on the concept of home ownership, which, like it or not, we in the UK have, mm. um, then that's a significant negative. On the other hand, interest rates as low as they are currently not only perpetuate and prop up businesses who are able to go out and get cheap debt and, uh, and carry on in business in a way that perhaps otherwise they, sh they shouldn't be able to and we'd be able to be more productive if they weren't frankly in existence. But moreover, you actively punish those who've made an effort to save yep. and have made an effort to invest and have been thrifty and a sort to invest in their future. So, but more, I think more about than that anything, too. it inflates the price of housing in the first place. Yeah, of course. Right. So, so it makes housing unaffordable. You need to have low interest rates to have any chance of buying the house. Yeah. So Why I don't, let's just crush a housing market well, and get in interest rates back to a sane level. Perhaps a glide path. A glide path towards a lower position, which it has to be supplemented by allowing the building of more homes. Government mm -hmm. every year comes out and says something like, we've got to build 300,000 new homes in this country, and every year we miss that target, and the next year they say, we've got to build 300,000 homes in, in, in this country. And you think to yourself, well, hang on, that, it's not actually right. I, I detect a problem with the maths. If you miss the annual growth target for our housing stock that you have said that we need, whatever your internal logic, you've said that's the number, well, Shouldn't it be 350,000 this year, given how badly you missed? Right. And 400,000, given how badly you missed the year before that? And we've got this wave of nimbyism and so forth in this country, which prevents more high-rises, more development uh, on what people sometimes call greenfield, but actually lots of very scrubby land. Um, uh, people who buy up a place and then promptly list objections to every application to build somewhere else around mm. it. And I, and I think that we've got to shake the needle on that, shake the dial on that. Um, somewhat, because in the end, it's very difficult to encourage people to believe in a home-owning society if they can see no prospect of owning their own home. You know, in the totally same, agree, yeah. yeah. In the same way that Kinnock said, it was very difficult for people uh, on the left to dissuade others from the notion that capitalism was working in their interests if they suddenly owned their own home and were taking foreign holidays and owned their own car and things they couldn't once have conceived of. The contrariwise burden for conservatives like me is to realise that if you don't make it easier for people to get on the housing ladder and to have that stake in their future, in the end they'll stop believing you as a party, especially if you're not a, a low tax party and letting them keep more of their own money in the first place. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's inevitable we go into recession? Um, well, on your basis, of course, on one view, we, we might already be in it, and we're masking, yes, we're masking it by dint of significant government action. But um, I think it's not inevitable, but it's likely. I think if you look at the economic indicators now, uh, two quarters of negative growth are, are very likely to come about in the next, let's say, 18 months to two years, right? So, yes, I think we're going to have a recession. I don't think it's going to be anything like as bad as some of the, the doomsayers currently of predict. You but, well, not least in part because, as I say, for all the reasons I've set out, I think the fundamentals are good in the United Kingdom, uh, but we are in affected by international headwinds as much uh, as, as other economies. So, um, I concede that we are going to very likely have a recession, which will pose a challenge for a party coming up inevitably to a time when we ha need to have another general election. Yeah, a, the timing is very wrong from that point of view. And that's, what's make, that's what makes me worry that they will try and buy their way out of it. They will try and spend their way out of it. Name a government that hasn't. Well, 
Thatcher didn't, to be fair, in the well, early it, 90s. It, it we had depends. a fairly deep recession. We had a housing market crash, but then we had a good economy for the next 15 years. So. Yeah, I know. It's very interesting, isn't it? In this leadership contest we're currently experiencing um, between two rival conservatives in the UK, uh, there's, there are two different conceptions of what Thatcherism is. This increasingly has come to define the race in some yeah. ways about what their economic the economic legacy of the Thatcher period was. And the, her great chancellors, Lawson and Howanko, actually had two different experiences. There are quite different perspectives on it. One was kind of more sound money and prudent, and that's what Sunak and Co. prefer to emphasise in the Thatcher era. But the other was far more kind of Reaganomic, you know, let's go out and uh, take a bit of debt on and let people um, have their head economically and lower taxes. But both of those experiences, if you're in government for more than 10 years, you tend to have more than one experience in it. And the, the, the Thatcher legacy is not clear on that, um, on that period. I, for one, think Currently, there is some merit in not inflicting too much pain uh, on people's pockets, but I would try and realise that at least in part by reducing state spending rather than saying, well, we can just do everything. All right, where are we going to reduce it? Um, I think there's a clutch of places in which um, the state's budget can go down. I think that for me, the first thing we've got wrong is allowing is allowing people to, to put more money into our healthcare system, not to deliver better healthcare outcomes, but to be able to say that they put more money into our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Not only does that take That's you all up people want to hear. Yeah. The only thing people want to hear, they don't know anything about the health service. Most people couldn't name the head of the NHS. All they think is that it's underfunded, it's chronically underfunded, it's always been underfunded, and if we just put some more money in, then it'd be all right. So that's all people want to hear, so that's all they get. Right, so there's a massive sort of hockey stick of spending that carries on if you stay on that course. And there is nothing you can do, even though we're putting more money into the NHS than it's ever received before, there's nothing you can do to stop that in the end taking up the majority of all state spending if you yeah. keep going in the path that you're going on. Right. So the first thing that you, you do face with that is realise that there is a quite significant bureaucratic infrastructure that has built and 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 done extremely well in that environment that you've got to take an axe to. The second is a very unpopular argument to have, but it's in the same way that it's been conservative governments that have taken on the unions in the end. The average number of hours worked by people like GPs has dropped very significantly, mm -hmm. which means you've got to go out and hire new doctors. Yeah, we've got and we haven't got any. We've got about 4,000 new, well, since last year we've got, like, what was it, 4,000 new doctors on the payroll and 10,000 new nurses. But that Not GPs, though. We've got no, a serious shortage of GPs few of them those are GPs that's true although we had this kind of temporary army for COVID vaccination whatever you think of that but I'm just making the point we had a 30,000 came back from retirement of whom 10,000 are still on the books on their kind of ex emergency exemption paid 15 pound a shot for that indeed yeah. and so you might query whether that was the right thing to do but that we are where we are and a thousand of those people have decided to reverse course and say I'm not going to retire anymore I'm unretired I'm going to return to the workforce such as be my enjoyment my enjoyment of working back in the healthcare system so you've got to put a bit of pressure on those people frankly and say the minimum number of hours you're going to work absent you know extraordinary circumstances is going to be this uh, otherwise you wind up with a whole clutch of people to whom you owe the kind of basic burden of employment whilst they're working relatively few hours. So first one, quite popular, taking the axe to bureaucracy within the healthcare system. Second one, wildly unpopular, but needs to be doing, having a, a good old fight with a unionised environment, mm -hmm. led by organisations like the BMA, who hold themselves out as impartial medical experts, but are in fact a trade union. Yeah. Um, 
Anyway, I haven't even got past Department 1 in terms of uh, <laughs> state, state um, spending cuts. But I, in my view, I would, um, I would also then seek to return a good amount of money to uh, the electorate in a few big bang devices. Right? So the first would be national insurance employer contributions, just a tax on jobs. Right? That, that is a classic deterrent to employing people imposed on employers. Yeah, governments midterm doing bold things when they basically said we don't care about debt anyway, but axe it. Right? Behold what I believe to be the enormous power of employment in this country unleashed when suddenly employers can employ more people and pay them more mm. because they've been relieved of that burden. And then the second thing in this country, national um, insurance contributions by individuals is a lie perpetuated upon the public, where we say to you, don't worry, Chris, at the end of your retirement, at the end, at the end of your career, you're going to retire, and there's this wonderful pot waiting for you, built up by your national People insurance. People really believe this, don't they? And it is a lie. I it paid is, it all my life. It is I not true. The best, best interpretation of it is that your national insurance contributions are being paid now as a, a working person to pay for the retirement of those already retired. And you might say, well, that's, that's a lovely social compact, right? That's part of the social contract, and it's good that we do that, but that's not what people believe. They think they've got a pot built up. National insurance contributions are a form of direct taxation, effectively, and we should seek over time to amalgamate it in with our income tax uh, and say an, an end to hidden taxation in, yeah. in that way. Tell the truth, and, yeah. Tell, tell the truth. And those two significant reforms, I think, would actually result in the end you know, Laffer had something to say with this, in the state receiving a significant uh, uplift over time because of the improved and increased economic activity and output from the state taking less and therefore encouraging economic activity. Well, it'd be nice to think that. I'm not sure necessarily where it would happen. It's, it's difficult to say. There are examples of Laffer curve in action, for sure. Corporate tax, corporation tax, I should say. Um, let's talk about this whole energy problem. It is a, a huge, yeah. huge, huge problem. What, what do you think? Uh, you, have you seen what Macron's been doing in France with this? Yeah, we've, we've got to build more nuclear. And no, that's I don't mean that. I mean in terms of paying everybody's electric bills. Oh, I see bills. what you mean. So yeah. he's, he's capped people's electric bills at 4% more than they were pre-crisis. Sure. And the government is going to pay the rest. Yeah, well, that's, that's very nice, I suppose, if you're uh, a bill payer for now. But it's a bit like saving up an enormous headache uh, or tumour because I'm just going to keep giving you aspirin and in the end the aspirin ain't going to be significant enough to deal with the significant problem that we've allowed to develop. I uh, mean in terms of building up debt? Not just, yeah, absolutely, enormous amounts of state debt but also an inability to get off that teat because you're not yeah. building enough energy to Right, because it's not just this winter, this right, is the thing. It's going to go on no forever. No reason to think this might not go on for a very why, long why, time. Why, why do we think in the end, given that for example the Chinese who used to be a very small percentage con consumer of Russian um, natural resources are now buying lots and lots of coal from the Russians. Russians found, found home for other bits of their gas and so forth. Why should we assume it's going to return to normal, even if there were peace between Russia yeah. and Ukraine? So in the absence of, of a, that meaningful fit, uh, fix like that, and I question whether for national sovereignty purposes and energy independence, it's good to be dependent on their energy, even if it did come back. You've got to build your own. And the thing about the French mix is that they they look fine for now because they did invest in nuclear generation ago. But if you stop continuing to invest and maintaining so that you can keep these things online, then you build up a problem. Now, that problem's a bit more acute in this country on the nuclear side because we 
we were not building power stations at anything like the same rate that we ought to. And we've been closing reliable, cheap, although very unliked sources of power, which depend on things like coal mm -hmm. in this country quite quickly. The Germans are at a more extreme end of that. Yeah. And what, what's happening in Germany as a result is that absent their nuclear facilities being um, suitably available, the Germans started closing their, their nuclear facilities after Fukushima, because you get a lot of tsunami in Germany, right? <laughs> right? So they suddenly cut off a, a solid, reliable source of renewable energy, and absent renewables being at a stage yet where they can meaningfully contribute to the grid in the way that you need to, and absent the Russian energy they were dependent upon, the Germans are now back to strip mining coal. Yeah. What well, they just brought on, they brought back three of their nuclear stations, I think, this week. Yeah, I mean, you have to do drastic things, but the most drastic thing they're doing is strip mining coal on a significant uh, scale. And coal is back as a non-trivial part of the European energy mix now. So I think about all those things when you ask me about the energy challenge. But in this country, the, the price cap it may feel good to consumers. It does feel good to consumers uh, because it offers some kind of protection, but we know it's going to keep jumping upwards. And we also know that in the past year or two, what it's done is drive a number of companies out of business. So. You have well, to that's the way markets should work. That's good, isn't it? Well, it's the market. The company should be driven out of business. But not, not, not if the not state government regulation. Exactly. Yeah. Not I mean, a lot of these companies seem pretty Mickey Mouse in the first place. Right? That's a different point. Um, if you can point, which I concede, but if you can point to the fact that the main thing keeping a, a business from profitability is state-imposed or state-mandated price maximums, mm. then it's not a free market. It's not a true market, no, right? Really. And then when you point to that, you say, well, that's the market in action. That's for the birds. The real problem I have with Macron's uh, policy on this, which is, is pretty similar to Keir Starmer's policy, as far as I can tell, which is just the government is going to pay for most of your energy bills, is why are the high prices in the first place? There's prices because there's a shortage of gas. In, in particular, there's an anticipated severe shortage of gas yeah. in, in the winter. And therefore, the reality is that Europe needs to reduce its energy consumption quite significantly. I don't know about how much, but I think 20% would be the, the minimum level required and if people don't if people aren't uh, exposed to the I don't accept that for a moment really uh, yeah of, of course not that's the that that is a that, that's the far that's the kind of Taliban-esque win of the wing of the environmentalist movement using this opportunity as they see it to make quality of life worse and, and say you should use less energy I do but not the believe Russians are turning off the taps that's not so that means we've got to pro provide more not that we should consume less how are we going to do that we are well like I've just said we've got to build more capacity oh yeah yeah, yeah, but that's for, that's for electricity. But for gas heating... And, 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 and import more LNG and build more terminals that are able to take LNG and buy more from the Americans and be willing to pay uh, over the odds sometimes to keep those resources going. If, in the end, you tell people your quality of life will materially be re uh, reduced because of uh, green measures or the, um, the, the crisis currently come about for which we've ill-prepared ourselves, they will turn, A, against the green agenda and say, I don't accept any of this anymore, it's too shirt, and B, likely against their government. So given my fundamental premises, generally speaking, uh, consumption is good and we should seek to uh, empower and support people to have a better quality well, of I life. Well, I agree. Obviously, I agree consumption is we good. Should I, generate I, more. I, would, I would like people not to have to turn their thermostat down this winter, but I think the reality is they're probably going to have to. And if they don't, and if they don't in France, that has a knock-on effect everywhere else, they're going to have yeah. to ration it. Unless you've got a really solid plan for making up all the shortfall from Russian gas... 
yeah. then that's the reality is we are going to have to wear a bit of a hair shirt this week. Well, this is part of my... Well, or I've jumped another jumper. More, uh, more, if more we, importing more LNG will be a significant proportion of that. One difficulty being the main facility for export to us in the United States just exploded. But if we leave oh, right. that, that to, to one side, those are, kind of, those, are, those are instrumental factors rather than strategic ones. Um, this is why Germany's problems being exported around the rest of the European Union. Outside of the island states, Cyprus, Malta, Ireland, Russia's dependence basically, Germany's dependence on Russian gas has meant that every country in Europe has been asked to take a gas haircut to diminish their consumption exactly the way that you have put. It may be that European Union cohesion says, that's fine, let's go for it. But I rather doubt that your average Spanish consumer, understanding the fact, is going to want to diminish materially their ability to um, take that, uh, that haircut, is going to want to take that haircut uh, to help out the Germans because of their ill-thought-through dependence on Russian gas. Fair enough. We're running out of time. Yep. I always go so quickly, but I did want to talk to you about your book. Thank you and very your much. your forthcoming book. Please yep. tell us about both. Lessons from History was out last year. It's a collection of, of stories, random anecdotes um, from history that I, I began telling on Twitter. And Chris, I had no idea if I was going to do five of these. You know, I, st I started telling these uh, stories to uh, an audience bored in lockdown and frustrated, and I was, I was living with my parents. My dad was very uh, unwell, and so I was sort of reaching out to an audience I didn't have in person to inflict my, my anecdotes on. And between, after ten, telling ten of, the, ten of these stories, I had a, a, book, a book deal. And um, oh, really? yeah, <laughs> 94 of these um, in the first book. There'll be a similar number in the second, which comes out in November. Imaginatively called More Lessons from History. A sequel, excellent. Yeah, well, the delay was caused by coming up with such an innovative title. <laughs> yeah. That's what really caused us to... Now, these to are all stories you won't have heard before. Is that the, the you, gist of it? You may have heard one or two. So it's very likely, for example, I tell the story of, of the Battle of Stamford Bridge, not over Chelsea ownership, but mm -hmm. um, the, the other Battle of 1066 before William the Conqueror Is it in came. Yeah. yeah. And... Um, the um, yeah, because what would happen was the Norwegians, along with a turncoat um, Englishman called Tostig, had come and promptly seized York. It was not a small in 1066. Uh, yeah, it was yeah, not yeah. a small venture from. Um, I did not know. From uh, basically our victory in that first battle of 1066 put a uh, uh, closed the Viking era. But forgive an anecdote. What happened was that. Tostig had gone over to the other side, and um, our King Harold, who'd been appointed after the death of Edward the Confessor, um, rode up to uh, York to be ready to, to confront these Norwegians and their assorted allies, inevitably including some Scots. And, um, and 10,000 aside, basically, but we were a bit more ready for it than they were. And uh, across the battle lines, um, they would have drawn up. A score of English knights rode in full head-to-toe armour, rode to the Norwegian lines and cried out, is Earl Tostig, the turncoat, uh, with you? First example of a double negative in, in our language. <laughs> it cannot be said that he is not. Uh, <laughs> Tostig shouts back. And the cry from the English herald is, you know, rather than have bloodshed, would Earl Tostig accept a return of, of his earldom? Indeed, he can have a third of the king's kingdom if he comes back. Not a bad deal, right? If you're going to just, no battle, third of a kingdom. Tostig shouts back, what will the English king give my ally, the king of Norway? Answer from the English, seven feet of English soil, maybe a bit more because he's so tall. <laughs> Tostig says, no then, I can't betray my friends, we go to battle. And as the English representatives ride back to their line, 
the king of Norway, Harald Hadrada, turns to Tostig and says, who was the Englishman that was negotiating with you under his visor? Uh, and Tostig says, that was my brother. It was the first time, the last time they ever spoke. These few forlorn words shouted over the battle lines, fruitlessly seeking to resolve their fraternal dispute. And of course it didn't come off, so the battle was fought and Tostig died. Um, the Norwegian king berated him and said, you should have told us it was him, we could have got him. He was so close to our lines. And Tostig said, I know, that's why I didn't tell you. Because if I told you, you would have killed him. And today, I would rather that he is my murderer than I be his. But, you know, Tostig gets a really bad rap in history. It was like, you know, maybe not the devil, but he's the, the guy who goes across the street to buy the devil a packet of cigarettes. Well, <laughs> you know, for me, this story puts a rather different complexion on it. That was my brother, the words that really will, will haunt me. Yeah, fantastic. Well, folks, go out and buy that book, and the new one comes out in November, Yep, it? that one's in the new one. Oh, that's in the new one. Yeah. Okay, you've got a special preview there on Swift Arbor's Known. Thanks very much for watching. Thank you especially if you are an IEO donor, as I think you are, aren't you, Alex? I am indeed. There you go. If you want to be like Alex, and who doesn't, you can go to ia.org.uk slash donate, or patreon.com slash London if you want to give money specifically to digital content like this. It's very kind of you to watch. We appreciate your, uh, your, your support and viewing and comments and the line or whatever else it is. We'll be back in two weeks. Take care. Goodbye.